Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Good Pods. Whatever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As for our social media, I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1, on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, and on TikTok as Let's Talk Micro. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, leave a review if the app allows you to do so, and definitely leave any feedback on social media. If you also have any uh, podcast topic suggestions, go ahead and you can leave them via social media or you can email me as, at letstalkmicro at outlook.com. And I also launched a YouTube channel it's kind of like in you know in construction, so there are like some shorts, you know, some videos, but not a lot yet. But definitely stay tuned. On social media, I like to post pictures of organisms and give updates as to when the next episode is coming out. So any feedback, any suggestions, they are always welcome and appreciated. If you haven't checked out the previous episode of Let's Talk Micro, please go ahead and do so. It was a great episode. Instead of talking of micro, we were talking about lab about the doctorate in clinical laboratory sciences program specifically and the guest was the first graduate from Rutgers University DCLS of or Doctor of Clinical Laboratory Sciences program Dr. Brandy Gonzalez and Dr. Gonzalez came to the podcast and talked about you know what kind of requirements you need for this degree what is this degree about you know it's a it's a career path she was a, a medical she is a medical lab scientist and she practiced for many years, you know, she was a, a manager. And then at some point in her life, she decided to pursue that degree. And she, you know, she talks about what made her pursue this degree. So, you know, she talked about what's the life, you know, a day in the life of a doctor in clinical lab sciences. She mentioned three schools, which there are on the show notes that offer this degree. And overall, can they be the directors or not? So definitely this is a career path that you can consider. And if you are considering it, definitely listen to this episode and check out the links on the show notes. And on today's episode, we are going back, you know, we're talking about microbiology again. And this time we are talking about discrepancies, specifically about discrepancies with blood cultures when you're doing, you know, uh, molecular testing. Those of you that work in micro and have had positive blood cultures so, you know, we typically, you know, there are some instruments out there that will perform an ID. You know, you have like PCR instruments. We mentioned the BioFire, the Eplex, the Luminex. And then you get an ID and you also get some genes, you know, detected. Some genes for resistance, you know, like a MECA or CTXM. So, in this episode, Dr. Rachel Leesman, she's a director of microbiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She joins the podcast and talks about what to do when you have discrepancies, meaning discrepancies between genotypic, genotypic and phenotypic testing. So, right, so you get this ID, you get this gene detected, and then when you do your susceptibilities, it doesn't match. So that's those type of discrepancies. Those of you that work in micro, you're definitely familiar with them. So Dr. Leesman came to the podcast to talk about these discrepancies and also about a lot of other stuff, you know, a lot of information in this 
podcast. So this is going to be two parts because, you know, we talk for a while and there's a lot of information. So she definitely talks about phenotypic and genotypic testing. She talks about make a gene. She talks about how blood cultures, you know, work and how these molecular systems work. What's detected in them? And, you know, she also offers some basic steps in troubleshooting. And at the same time, she provides examples of discrepancies. All in all, a great episode, very informative, very educational. So on the first part, which is this episode right now, she's going to go over some terms such as, you know, like phenotypic, genotypic, make a, how the blood cultures work, and also she the basic ste steps in troubleshooting. And then on the next part, which is going to be next week, that's where she's going to talk about the specific examples of discrepancies. So let's go ahead and listen to part one with Dr. Rachel Leesman. So those of us that work in the lab, we have definitely experienced discrepancies in susceptibility testing. So I thought it would be a good idea. You know, I was attending a conference and I saw one of the presenters have a talk about this. And I figure it will be a great idea to bring this to the podcast. So with me today, I have Dr. Rachel Lisman, and she's going to be talking about discrepancies in susceptibility testing. Dr. Lisman, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Definitely my pleasure. So let's go ahead and can you start with a quick uh, introduction to the audience? Yeah, of course. Um, my name is Rachel Leesman. I am currently the medical director of microbiology and molecular diagnostics at the Medical College of Wisconsin up here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I've been here a month, so still kind of new. Uh, but prior to this, I was the medical director of microbiology and molecular microbiology at the University of Kansas Health System. Well, definitely great having you. And you know, you mentioned Wisconsin, and and I haven't I mentioned this on to on the podcast before, but I. I was in the military. I did my basic training in Great Lakes, Illinois, and I was there for nine months. And once winter started from the moment, I think I left in April and some days, you know, it was still snowing and this was like 20 years ago. So it was definitely very cold. I mean, I do enjoy it. I think I'm, I live in the wrong state, but definitely it was, it was very cold the whole time I was there. Yeah, it can, it can be a little chilly, um, but uh, usually you get a few nice days in the wintertime where the sun's out and, you know, it's above freezing. So we try to enjoy those days as much as possible. Yeah, I see that. I mean, as, as, a, as a new military, like, you know, like shoveling the snow as my orders. Yeah, that wasn't fun. But as a civilian, I, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, snow shoveling is not my favorite chore either. Okay, so let's go ahead and start with, with the basics. So... For the audience, you know, let's talk about the difference between uh, genotypic and phenotypic testing. Yeah, absolutely. So big, big, big picture. Um, when we identify a clinically significant isolate in the microbiology lab, we want to do some additional testing that is going to help our physicians understand what treatment of choice is going to work for their patient. So the goal of susceptibility testing really is to predict treatment success or failure for any given bug drug uh, combination. Um, so there's several ways you can do phenotypic susceptibility testing. Um, and, and phenotypic susceptibility testing is the gold standard. Um, so when we think about phenotypic susceptibility testing, usually what you're doing is you're exposing a specific isolate to a certain concentration um, of antibiotic, and you're looking for what concentration of antibiotic um, prevents or inhibits growth of that organism. 
And so the lowest concentration um, that is going to inhibit bacterial growth is considered our minimal inhibitory concentration or MIC. Once we've determined our MIC, then we're gonna use evidence-based data to apply an interpretation. So that's what we're used to thinking about as susceptible or resistant or intermediate. Um, and those interpretations are meant to um, provide a prediction about the likelihood of treatment success or failure for any specific organism. So when we think about phenotypic AST, um, in the laboratory, we're thinking about disc diffusion or um, antibiotic strip gradients or ETS um, or microbroth dilution. And most clinical laboratories are going to use some sort of automated system, right? So um, the main vendors for those are going to be um, the Phoenix instrument, the Microscan instrument, the Vitec instrument. So those are our automated susceptibility testing. And that's kind of our phenotypic susceptibility. Genotypic susceptibility that we're also going to talk about today is a molecular-based approach. Um, so in that case, what we're doing is we're looking for specific genes that we know confer resistance to certain antimicrobials. And we're usually looking for those genes through some sort of nucleic acid amplification test or NAT. Um, our most common NAT is a PCR, so most people are familiar with that. Um, we can do these tests either on a specific bacterial isolate or more and more frequently, we can do them directly from a patient specimen. And so labs are performing genotypic susceptibility testing sometimes from something like a positive blood culture bottle or maybe a respiratory specimen or a joint fluid or something like that. And I think that what we're seeing is more and more we have an option to bring in genotypic susceptibility testing, and it is usually done alongside that phenotypic susceptibility testing. So we're doing both of them concurrently. Yes, definitely. And and those of you of the audience that, you know, they're uh, medical lab scientists and work in the lab, you know, you're familiar if you're working on the on the positive blood culture bench, you know, you get your bottle, you do your gram stain and you typically have one of different systems. And I have talked about them a little bit. You know, some you have to you just run one panel and it will give you from gram negative, gram positive. You know, a lot of your typical, you know, you get your staph aureus, you know, E. coli, pseudomonas and some other systems, you know, you have to use one for gram positive. Or, or ground negative. And uh, you were mentioning about the the automated systems and definitely with the way that in the volume that we have in the lab is definitely a good thing that we have them because they help out. I remember I had a guest prior that in her lab at the time, they did a lot of disc diffusion. You know, my thought was how do they handle the volume? I mean, but she said they have one, you know, they have team members that are just dedicated to that. They're just reading all day. So I guess. Yeah, and there are, there are automated systems that help with that too, right? So um, we know there are automated plating systems that can help actually do the plating for that. There are systems that will automatically drop your discs these days. There are actually systems that will automatically read the disc diameter too. And so I think um, even when you're doing more manual or typically or historically manual based approaches to that, there are still ways to make that automated. But I agree, most of us are doing, you know, the kind of standard big automated systems just because the workload is a bit too much to do the manual approach typically. Yeah. And, and the bigger you are, I mean, I work in a very large facility and not too long ago, our Molotov went down and that made for a couple of tough days because then people had to like, readjust their thinking. And it was just, yeah, it was, it was, we got, we got through it. Yeah, those are tough days. We've done through some of those too. And those those are certainly tough and time consuming days. And um, that's, an, that's a team-based all hands on deck kind of approach in the lab for sure. Definitely agreed. So, you know, in the lab, you know, we're definitely familiar with uh, MRSA or MRSA. 
Um, can you talk about the, the MECA gene and the MECC and their relationship to methicillin resistance? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's start off a little bit with like the clinical side of this. So um, we know for Staph aureus, our treatment of choice is going to be a beta-lactam antibiotic. So normally what clinicians are choosing on a Staph aureus ideally is something like nafcillin or some of our other anti-staphylococcal penicillins. Um, if the isolate is resistant to our beta-lactams, like it's an MRSA, the clinicians then are going to have to choose completely different classes of drugs. So they're going to choose vancomycin or daptomycin or linezolid or some other drugs, depending on the patient um, and the type of infection. And so determining that beta-lactam resistance, MRSA versus MSSA in the clinical lab is one of the most important things we do because we know that there is a mortality and morbidity um, impact on patients with staph aureus infections and getting them on the right um, antibiotic as quickly as possible. So um, in for staph aureus, um, the nomenclature is a little bit funky, right? Because we do our phenotypic susceptibility testing for staph aureus using either oxacillin or cefoxetin. If it's resistant, we call it methicillin-resistant staph aureus. And then the clinicians use something like nafcillin or cefazolin to treat them. So like the nomenclature is a little bit silly and there's some historical reasons for this and, and everything. Um, so that's kind of the medical side of that. So we've established that it's really important to figure out if any staph aureus is a methicillin resistant or methicillin susceptible. So as I talked about earlier, phenotypic susceptibility testing is going to be um, our gold standard. And the challenge with that phenotypic susceptibility testing is it's time consuming, right? So we all know we've got an isolate, you know, we either set up our distal strips or we put it on our automated system. And then you're going to wait usually about 18 hours before you get those results. And so in patients with really severe staph aureus infections, that 18 hours becomes really important because they're not on the right antibiotic in that time frame. So we need in the clinical lab better ways to rapidly differentiate between MRSA and MSSA. So that's something really important that we do. Um, and I also want to take like kind of a little bit of a step back just to understand the biology of how Staph aureus confers resistance to methicillin, right? So what is an MRSA? Um, so um, as you mentioned, the MECA gene um, is a gene that when it's expressed is um, expressed as a protein called PVP2A, um, and that stands for penicillin binding protein 2A. So penicillin binding proteins are proteins that are really important in cross-linking the peptidoglycan layer of the cell wall. So this confers a lot of the rigidity of the cell wall for bacteria. It's super important for bacterial growth and for their health. And our beta-lactam antibiotics, when they're targeting Staph A, uh, Staph aureus work by basically sitting into the binding pocket of that PDP2A protein or that PDP2 protein and preventing its enzymatic activity. So the organism comes in, it sits in the binding pocket, it prevents that enzyme from cross-linking the peptidoglycan layer, and then the bacterial cell wall doesn't work very well and the organism dies. 
So that's how our beta-lactam antibiotics work for Staph aureus. And anytime we have a really good antibiotic, there's always a little bit of an arms race, right, between what we can develop on the antibiotic side and what the organisms are developing in order to not die. So Staph aureus, one of the primary ways by which they have developed resistance to our beta-lactams is by expressing this PBP2A protein. And that is an altered version of the PBP2 protein. So the alteration essentially is an alteration in that binding pocket. So now the beta-lactam doesn't really fit into the enzyme and the enzyme still works. And so that's how it confers resistance there. So PBP2A is what it eventually confers resistance to methicillin and gives us MRSA. Right. Um, and so since we know that MECA is the gene and PBP2A is the protein that gives us MRSA, we can go and see if we can't develop and implement tests to look for these basic components in order to predict MRSA without necessarily doing phenotypic testing. So um, many people in the clinical lab might be familiar with the PBP2A test. That's a latex agglutination test. It is done on isolated colonies and it takes like 15 to 20 minutes before you get a result, right? So that's definitely faster than the 18 hours it takes us to do phenotypic testing. But we can also look for that MECA gene. And we can look at for that MECA gene from colonies, or we can look at it directly from a patient specimen, like a patient blood culture. And again, what we're doing is we're saying, oh, we see MECA, we expect it to be resistant to our beta-lactam antibiotics. And so we're going to call this an MRSA 18 to 24 hours earlier than if we did it only by phenotypic testing. And so that's why sort of how these um, genotypic approaches and, and some of our, you know, in, in the case of MRSA, PBP2A testing really fits into the clinical picture of giving us um, actionable results as soon as possible. Okay. And uh, so, and we touched on, on, on the blood cultures and, and molecular testing. And I kind of mentioned, you know, depending on some systems, depending on, you know, some detect all the, they have different targets in one test. Some have, you know, one for gram positive, one from gram negative. So can you give an overview of molecular testing for blood cultures? You know, like typically what organisms are detected and, and genes? Yeah, for sure. Um, so again, you know, if we think about how blood cultures usually work through our system, right? So um, a patient comes in, they're septic, there's some sort of clinical reason that they think they might have a bloodstream infection. Um, the clinician's going to order blood cultures, we're going to draw those, those come into the clinical lab and get put on an automated reading instrument. And they sit on there until they flag positive, right? So you have enough microbial growth for it to flag positive. Usually for most of our um, typical infections, that is a 24 a 48 hour wait before it's positive. Once it's positive, our tech's in the lab, pull that bottle off, they do the gram stain, they read that and report that to the clinical teams. And then they do a subculture and incubate that for 18 to 24 hours. After that, we have an identification and then we're going to set up our susceptibility and that's going to incubate for another 18 to 24 hours, right? So if you think about that time frame, we are two days now out from when the bottle was positive to when we give our clinicians clinically actionable results. And if you back it up even further, we're three to four days out from when that patient presented and was very, very sick before we've given those clinically actionable results. So blood cultures are this really nice example of an opportunity we have to back up that turnaround time and to try to give some of those important clinically actionable results sooner while we wait for, you know, the full susceptibility and kind of that full um, workup on the culture. So um, 
Blood culture identification, that's sometimes called BCID. So these BCID panels have been available now for some time. People are probably familiar with many of the vendors. Um, BioFire BCID is a big one. The Vera gene is a big one. Um, and the Genmark Eplex is another one that's probably the newest to market. Um, you had mentioned um, some of them are gram stain agnostic, right? So the panel has both gram negatives and gram positives. That's how the BioFire is built. Um, the Vera gene and Eplex are both, um, there are separate gram negative and gram positive panels. So you have to read and interpret the gram stain first, and then you set up the appropriate panel. Most of them have on the order of about 15 to 30 targets on them. So they're covering a pretty wide range of organisms. Um, and they're the ones that you typically expect to see in blood culture. So Staph aureus is on there, your Enterococcus faecium inficalis are on there, you know, all of your Enterobacterales from your gram negatives and Pseudomonas aeruginosa, you know, those are kind of your typical organisms. Um, they will oftentimes call out, some of the panels will call out some of your common contaminants as well, like Staph Staphylococcus epidermidis or some of your Carini bacterium. And that can be helpful to telling clinicians, oh, okay, this is just a blood culture contaminant. This isn't, you know, this positive blood culture is not indicating a bacteremia in my patients. Um, so those are kind of the general bacterial side of the panel. From the genotypic susceptibility um, side, they all are relatively the same at this point. There's been some updates to some of um, the panels. And at this point in time, all of the panels have the MEC-A gene and the MEC-C gene. So those are what we're detecting to um, predict MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. They all have the VAN-A and the VAN-B gene as well. So VAN-AB confer vancomycin resistance in our enterococci. So enterococcus faecium urficalis, if you find VAN-A, VAN-B, you can call that a VRE. If you don't find that, that's going to be vanc-susceptible. Um, so that's the coverage on the gram-positive side. On the gram-negative side, most of these panels have the CTXM gene. So CTXM is one of the most common ESBL genes that we have in the United States. Um, there are hundreds and hundreds of ESBL genes, so it's only one of many, but it is the most common one we find. Um, and then they also detect usually the big five of our carbapenemase genes. So our ESBLs confer resistance to our third generation cephalosporins, like ceftriaxone, um, mostly found in our enterobacterales. And then our carbapenemase genes confer resistance to our carbapenem class of antibiotics. Most commonly used are going to be ertapenem and meropenem. And so those are going to be, KPC is probably the most common one that we see in the United States. Um, also NDM, VIM, IMP, and then OXA 48-like genes. And similar to CTXM, there's lots of different other carbapenemase genes that are not detected by the panel, but the panels are going to find the most common ones that we see, um, at least here in the United States. So that's pretty much the coverage at this point in time. Most of the panels have relatively similar coverage. There aren't huge differences between what's covered by each individual vendor at this point. Okay. Um, you know, and, and as you mentioned, you know, with the typical setup, definitely, and that's something that I always like to tell the audience and definitely, you know, with micro, it's all about time, you know, it takes time. So it's like you play it and you kind of have to start thinking ahead because it's something that if you miss something, it costs you a day. So, you know, like sometimes we forget, you know, we label our plate and we don't subculture it. And the next day we find an empty plate. Or things like that. So we always have to kind of stay ahead a little bit of the game, thinking about, okay, checking that history or if your drug terminates, you know, maybe while you're setting a panel, set up the, the, the reflex if the patient has a history of MDRO. So it's definitely, you know, it's all about time in micro. 
Yeah, and we really depend. You mentioned this. You know, our 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 um, techs on the bench really have to look at the big picture and understand. You know, what's going on with this isolate? Does the patient have a history? Can we expect this to be resistant or susceptible to certain antibiotics? And should we kind of um, set up confirmatory tests a little earlier or something like that. And so um, one of the reasons that microbiology is so much fun, especially clinical microbiology, is, is the complexity and, and that kind of um, just constantly needing to think about what's the big picture? What else do I need to do? How do I put all this together? And how do I predict what's going to happen for me tomorrow so I can stay ahead of the games and stay ahead of the microbes? Because you're right. If you, um, you know, sometimes you miss something, you forget to set something up and those bugs, you know, take a while to grow. And so you tack on another 24 hours there sometimes. So we we try to avoid that. And um, our techs are really good at thinking through those problems. Yeah. Well, yeah, we definitely, you know, definitely are and put a lot of care. And, you know, like I, I sometimes, you know, joke, my one of my biggest fears is just like leaving my plates out and I go home. And sometimes, you know, I have dreamt about that. Um, I've woken up at two o'clock in the morning and thought, did I put that in the incubator? So... <laughs> had that experience. I think we've all had that experience. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So you mentioned, you know, and, and in the lab, we're definitely, we have seen discrepancies. And um, so let's go ahead and start talking about troubleshooting. So let's start with basic steps. Yeah. So um, anytime, like referring to this and everything else, anytime that you're answering the same question with two different methods, you have to make sure those methods agree, right? And you have to just prepare for them to not agree because eventually something will be discrepant. So in this case, we're doing phenotypic susceptibility and genotypic susceptibility. So we just want to prepare for differences and discrepancies there and importantly, set ourselves up. So number one, we're checking those, we're finding them as quickly as possible. And number two, everybody who is working on that blood culture or bench, if we're talking about BCAD, kind of knows at least in the beginning how we're going to get into this discrepancy troubleshooting. Um, for me, anytime you see a discrepancy, and just to kind of back up a second too, when we talk about discrepancies, there's kind of two main discrepancies that we're thinking about. So the first is that you have the antimicrobial resistance target is not detected, and your drug of choice or antibiotic of choice is resistant, right? And then the second is the opposite of that, where your AMR target is detected. So you expect resistance, but your antimicrobial is susceptible. So the troubleshooting between those can be a little bit different, even though there are commonalities there. So those are the things that we got to look out for in the lab. We've got to be ready to check. Um, for me, I always like to take the easiest stuff first, right? Like I want to spend 10 minutes doing something and can fix the problem quickly. So I'm going to check all of the usual easy stuff that we check when we're working up discrepancies in the lab. This means, do we have a clerical error? Did it get reported correctly? Do we have any labeling issues? Did we set up susceptibility testing um, on a mixed colony or on a mixed isolate or something like that? Check your purity plate just to make sure. And rarely do we find um, mistakes here, but if we do, this can save a lot of time down the road. So we just want to double check all of those things, make sure we apply the right breakpoints, kind of do the basics before we get too far into the complicated stuff. 
After those are checked and confirmed, um, then we're thinking about, do we want to set up some additional testing? So one thing you always want to think about is, do you need to or want to confirm either your genotypic or your phenotypic approach? And if you do, do you have an alternative method? So the ideal scenario is, you know, you confirm your phenotypic susceptibility using alternative method. You started on your automated system, now you drop a disk or a strip or something like that. That's usually most labs are set up to do that, and that's that's achievable. Genotypically confirming that can get a little challenging. Um, you could rerun the panel. That's expensive. Um, and then you could, if you have a different method, um, use a different method. But most labs don't have multiple methods to do genotypic, or genotypic susceptibility, right? So, yeah, maybe labs have a couple methods they could do to detect MACA, but usually there's not multiple ways to detect whether or not a CT. TXM is present or something like that. So I always try to do those first. Um, and then depending on how that looks like, I'm also starting to think about what are some of the biological reasons behind this discrepancy? And those can be very specific based on the discrepancy. And then how do I start testing or determining whether or not um, some of those biological reasons might be present? So um, I might be thinking about, is this a mechanism not detected on the panel? Does that make sense? Or what are the things that might make sense that can help guide my discrepancy or my workup and troubleshooting there. So that's kind of like the big picture of how I start approaching these discrepancies on that kind of day one, just got the sus off and we're looking at it, you know, and, and together at the bench. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's definitely uh, good, you know, you include all those steps because sometimes, you know, it can get in, in the bench, it can get a little overwhelming and you're busy, we're looking at multiple things and especially, you know, with blood culture. So you're trying to be so careful and then you get issues like this. And yeah, sometimes, you know, it's a simple, like I had a case like that where the report said, you know, that it was a, a VRE and it was susceptible for vancomycin. And then I just checked the printout and it was just like the person reported it as an error. They just typed the wrong code. Yep. Yeah. And that's that low hanging fruit. And you just want to double check that people make mistakes. If it's not interface, even if it is interface, things glitch. Um, and that can save you a lot. I have definitely been in situations where I didn't check that first and I did a bunch of troubleshooting and then we finally went back and checked it and we found it. And I was like, oh man, learn that lesson the hard way. So um, it's always good to kind of start with those straightforward, just quick checks. They can be done immediately. And, um, you know, after you get that checked, then you move on to the more complicated, um, more time consuming type of work. Definitely. Um, and just to add to that also with the, with the susceptibility testing and even sometimes, you know, uh, it's always good to get familiar with the limitations of each of these tests. You know, a lot of times you get the probes, you know, cross react, you get other organisms and things like that. So it's always, you know, you're doing your testing and it's good as you have some downtime, definitely, you know, look at that package insert and, and get familiar with those limitations, you know, they're in your SOP. So it's good knowledge to have that way when you have some type of discrepancy, that's something that you can turn to. Yeah, that's such an awesome reminder. And as we, you know, when we brought on a new method for BCAD, as we found some of these discrepancies and went back and found, oh, okay, yeah, this actually was in the package inserts, kind of buried in there, we found it. We would add that to the limitation section of our SOP or we'd add it, you know, because it's much easier to pull up your own SOP than to go find the package insert or something. And so as you bring, if this is new to your lab and as you bring it on and as you learn these aspects and these nuances um, of both your genotypic and your phenotypic, 
specific susceptibility or primary methods, incorporating those into your SOPs becomes really important. And that's a great way to share your knowledge with the other techs that are going to be on the bench. And we'll eventually, you know, those new techs are going to train on the bench and maybe haven't done, you know, troubleshooting before. So that's a, that's a good point and a great thing to remember for labs. Yes. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of part one of the discrepancy series. As always, you know, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. I always enjoy sharing this information with you. So continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. And don't forget to tune in next week for part two and the conclusion of discrepancies in blood cultures with Dr. Rachel Leesman. As always, thank you for listening. Good things coming your way. Stay motivated. Stay safe. And of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.